Our text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 22 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through Matthew's gospel. Hear now God's holy word. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We ask you as we hear the words of our Savior today that your spirit would guide us into truth, that you would deliver us from every error, deliver us from every distracting thought and any distracting event, anything that would steal away the word as it's planted in our hearts. Cause it to bear much fruit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of my favorite ways to pass the time on long car rides is to start arguments. That's, I love to pass the time by starting arguments. Friendly, friendly arguments, good-natured arguments, at least they start out that way. Uh, I like to ask, who is objectively the greatest quarterback of all time? Or who is the greatest rock and roll band ever? What is the best album or song? Or who's the best major league pitcher? What is the best, who, who, what fast food chain has the best French fries? What is objectively the best condiment? Or which month of year is the best? And, and ask a question like that and debate. And no matter what position you take, I'll take the opposite position and argue that, in fact, you know, August is the best month or whatever. We'll, we'll debate. <laughs> if you play your cards right and you do this right, you not only get miles of inter- entertainment on the car ride, but you might also get miles of silence when you take things too far. Uh, and, and that in itself is its own blessing sometimes. You can always patch things up in the next rest stop. You know, I, 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 take, I take back what I said about Billy Joel. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry what I said about Burger King. Forgive me. Um, uh, uh, but attempting to rank things and to identify the greatest in a category is a sure way to instigate a petty argument. If you enjoy camping out in minutia and arguing over inconsequential things, asking what is the greatest, what is the best, that is the way to do it. Now the apostles tried that a a few chapters ago with the Lord Jesus when they were bickering amongst themselves and they said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Lord Jesus, rank us top to bottom, one through 12, rank us so that when you become king, We'll know who's the secretary of state and who's the minister of the treasury. We'll know, we'll know wh- how we rank. And that is also the kind of question that one of the Jewish legal experts bring Jesus in this part of Matthew's gospel. He asked Jesus, what is the great commandment? Among all God's commandments, what is, the, what is the greatest commandment in the law? But this lawyer is not looking for a good-natured, friendly debate. He's not just looking for a way to pass the time. He's being malevolent. He's hoping to draw Jesus into a useless argument that's going to make somebody angry. That's what he's after. Where are we in the gospel? Let's uh, remember and catch up to this place. In Matthew 22, we're in the last week of Jesus's ministry in Jerusalem. And as best I can figure, this is likely on the Wednesday before he's betrayed on Thursday. He's crucified on Friday. 
he comes out of the grave on Sunday. We're, we're in that week. The previous Sunday, he had come into the city triumphantly. The people waved branches and sang Hosanna. Jesus went straight into the city and straight into the temple. He turned over the tables of the money changers. He interrupted the work and the business of the temple. He declared the corruption of the temple. He signified that the temple would be overthrown, and then he left the city. He spent the night in Bethany with friends. He comes back and sits in the temple courtyard then as wave after wave of interrogators come to him. The chief priests and the elders of the temple were the first to approach him, and they asked him, who do you think you are? Under what authority are you teaching these things and doing these things? And Jesus answered them with a riddle, and with parables that expose them as being wicked tenants. They are not good stewards of the things entrusted to them with the temple. And then after that, some of the seminary students, some of the disciples of the Pharisees, together with the Herodians, come to Jesus to test him on taxes. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Does it please God to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus famously answers, give to Caesar whatever belongs to him. Give to what, what belongs to Caesar, give it back to him. But give to God the things that are God's. What belongs to God? And this is the most important thing, the most significant thing, is to give God what is God's. Well, well, here again, these people were trying to start a political discussion. And hopefully if they played their cards right to start a, a riot, but Jesus skillfully deflected their question uh, and, and gave them that answer. The Sadducees then are the next to show up. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They confessed to believe in the law of Moses, however, and they presented this convoluted question to Jesus about one woman who's widowed by seven successive, seven consecutive husbands. And then they say, what gives? If there is life after death, Jesus, then in the, in the resurrection, whose wife is she? Well, Jesus proved that these guys really didn't believe the law of Moses that they said that they believed, and they didn't understand anything about the resurrection. They didn't know what they were talking about. All their premises were way off, and Jesus answered, essentially, there is no marriage in the resurrection. So these waves of opposition are coming at Jesus, interrogators barking and nipping opportunistically like a pack of wild dogs, you may have experienced something like this if you've ever spoken up in a college classroom and you just say something, you know, just rational, logical, normal, you know, uh, the, the, the riot starts, right? Everybody says, but what about, but what about, and, and you get the whole wave of, of opposition. Or if you've ever presented a biblical argument in an online forum, um, it's the same thing. It's, it's, like, it's like whacking a hornet's nest and, and getting them all flying at you from every direction. That's the experience that, that Jesus is having here. The, 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 the sarcasm, the insincere questions, the scoffing, the name calling come at you from every direction. And that's what has happened to Jesus as he sits in the temple courtyard. You can't, you can't whack them away quick enough. There's one right behind him. Well, that's the scene. And now comes the final interrogator in the form of a lawyer who's with the Pharisees. Verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. This is the image of them swarming. They're congregated. They, they circle like dogs, which reminds us of Psalm 22, right? Uh, Psalm 22 says, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked 
has enclosed me. It's like Psalm 2, uh, when the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, against his Messiah. That's what's happening here. They're counseling together. They're congregating together. They're swarming together against Jesus. On any other day, all of these groups, the chief priests, the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots who are in the crowd, none of them would have gotten along any other day of the week. Uh, they would all be at each other's throats. But here, they're united in their opposition to Jesus. And this, incidentally, is the only thing that unites the heathen. This is the only thing that unites unbelievers, is their hatred of, of Jesus. I mean, that's, that's the only thing that they can all agree on. And it's the only thing that they are united in here. Verse 35, then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the great commandment? In the law, again, this is another disingenuous question. This is an attempt to instigate a petty argument. Hey, let's rank all the laws in order of importance. This, this lawyer is hoping to reveal an imbalance in Jesus's teaching or to provoke Jesus to offend somebody. You, you can't engage a question like that without, without initiating a whole series of arguments. That's what the lawyer is looking for. He hopes that Jesus is going to inflame one of the 17 extremist groups in this crowd who are hanging around in the temple that day and, and, and make them mad because Jesus didn't emphasize their pet doctrine. That's what the hope is. What, what kind of answer would make anybody happy? Uh, what kind of answer to this question? Uh, the, among all the commandments in God's law, with the, which the Pharisees had identified 613 individual ordinances, individual laws in the Pentateuch, which one of all of these is best? And so, and so maybe, just maybe, they think he'll reach for some obscure law and elevate that. Incidentally, this is precisely what the Pharisees were doing, right? In the very next chapter, Matthew 23, when we get there, we'll see Jesus uh, uh, rebuking the Pharisees for tithing out of their spice racks and ignoring the weightier matters of the law. They do this all the time. They, they take small things and they blow them out of proportion, but that's what they're hoping to get Jesus to do. Interesting also that wicked men always accuse you of doing the thing that they're already doing. They expect you to do the thing that they're already doing because they're good at it and they know what that kind of sin looks like and they expect Jesus is gonna do the same thing. Well, you know this question is not genuine Matthew says the lawyer is testing him. He's testing him. That's the same word that's used when the temptation of Satan in the wilderness is described. Satan tested or tempted Jesus in the wilderness. And just as Jesus was tempted three times by Satan in the wilderness, so now Jesus is tempted or tested three times by this brood of vipers. That's what John the Baptist called this group. He called them these brood of vipers, these baby snakes, these sons of Satan. Jesus is tested by them in the temple courtyard. So Jesus's ministry is bookended by two sets of testing, both by Satan in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry and now at the end of his ministry, three testings, three temptations in the sanctuary, in the temple. The Pharisees uh, uh, attempted to entangle him um, uh, with, the, uh, with the denarius, with the tax. Uh, the, the Sadducees uh, tried to trick him with that convoluted question about the, 
the resurrection, attempting to trip him up. And then, and then now they ask him again a question to tempt him, to trick him, to test him. So Jesus is asked a question here about the law. And they're concerned about Jesus's position of the law because they've assumed all along, ever since they first heard about Jesus, they assumed that the mission of Jesus was to undermine the law of Moses. And from the very beginning, the Lord Jesus has been absolutely clear that that's not what he came to do at all. In the Sermon on the Mount, the first great body of Jesus's teaching, the first great public teaching of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And Jesus is clear from the beginning because he knows that in following his father's law, in fulfilling and establishing his father's law, he was going to be accused of denying it because popular interpretations and understandings of, of God's law had drifted so far from the truth. And so people who are following the distortion are going to look at the faithfulness of Jesus and see him as a dangerous and disruptive person. And what they're hoping now is that Jesus will come right out in front of this crowd and discredit himself so that they can show everybody, look, he doesn't understand the law and he's exalting himself above it. Well, how does Jesus answer? What is the greatest commandment? That's the question. What is the great commandment? Verse 37. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. For the Hebrew people living at this time, this is the single most well-known, widely memorized, most often quoted verse from their scriptures. That's what Jesus quotes there. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. If you're paying close attention, you've noticed, and you've probably noticed this before, that in Deuteronomy, it says, love the Lord your God with all your soul, I'm sorry, with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. When Jesus quotes it, he says soul, heart, soul, and mind. And so the question was, does Jesus misquote that? Uh, what, what, why, does, why does Jesus say mind and Deuteronomy says strength? Well, the, the Hebrew word that gets translated strength for us means might, it means everything. It, it means with every fiber of your being. It means with all of your, all of your presence, all of your person. Matthew, of course, he's translating this into Greek. Matthew grabs that word and he translates it mind. He, he attempts to, the, the idea is to, um, is to translate that whole sense here as, as the mind. Uh, Mark and Luke just cover all their bases. Mark and Luke say mind and strength when they, when they quote Jesus here. But the point is, Jesus isn't, isn't misquoting Deuteronomy. It's a matter of trying to take a word in Hebrew and translate it into English. And the one that Matthew gives us comes from Hebrew through Greek uh, to English. And that's all it is. It's, a, it's trying to capture the, the sense of what Deuteronomy is talking about. And essentially, what, what, is, what the command there is to love the Lord your God Again, with every fiber of your being. There's nothing reserved. All of you is poured out in love toward God. Your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind, however you describe it, every part of you 
is given to God. Now this, this little phrase uh, from uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, this was called the Shema. This is the basic creed or confession of faith that was recited by everyone from childhood all the way through adulthood. You said this at the beginning of the day and you said this before you went to bed at night. At the start of the day and the close of the day, you said the Shema. Now that word Shema comes from the first word in the phrase, Shema Israel. Hear Israel, uh, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. So the point is that there is, there is no single line from the entire Hebrew scriptures that the average Jew knew better than this one, which means that Jesus responds to this attempt to initiate this technical, complex, arcane, theological debate. Jesus responds to this with the most basic answer that any three-year-old could give. Imagine asking a uh, Christian theologian, a great famous Christian theologian, asking, what is the most profound, what is the most important theological truth? And you might expect him to give you a very complicated, heavy, jargon-filled answer. You're probably using words like kenosis and perichoresis, you know, heavy, heavy academic language. But instead, when you ask him, what is the most profound theological truth? He says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That, that is the most profound theological truth. And, and to be honest, sometimes it, it doesn't get any weightier than that, right? I mean, sometimes that's exactly what the, the most, that's so full of uh, importance and weight and reflection on its own. Well, that's the kind of answer that Jesus gives. The, the kind of answer that Jesus gives is, is one that any child should be able to, to provide. And if a child can answer this question, then what does that say about these men who are opposing Jesus? What does a child know about God's law and God's requirements that these men obviously have missed? So rather than playing their game, once again, we've seen this over and over, right? Jesus doesn't play their game. They set up their rules and they set up the parameters of the conversation, but Jesus just eclipses all of that and he doesn't engage where they want him to engage. So, so rather than pitting one of the Ten Commandments against the other nine, rather than elevating one, one of God's law over the rest, he summarizes all of the law in a way that God's already done it. And he summarizes the law this way, love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. With everything, love the Lord your God. With everything that you are, love him. And then he says there's another commandment, the second commandment, just like it. It's like the first great commandment. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, Jesus is not innovating here. He's not, he's not coming up with something that's never been said before. He's in fact, he's quoting Leviticus 19, 18, which again is, is they should know, they should have this and they should be able to answer this themselves. So love your neighbor as yourself. If, if you love God the way that he describes, that love will find expression in other relationships and you will consider other people around you as, as, as people for whom love is owed, toward whom love is owed. This is critical. What Jesus summarizes here and what Jesus so clearly articulates is foundational. This is so important. You cannot say that you love God and simultaneously 
live in contempt or hatred of the people that God has put in your life. And conversely, you cannot truly love your neighbor unless you love the triune God. You get it, right? If you, if you do not love the people around you, you do not love God. And, and if you do not love the Lord your God, you cannot, you cannot serve or love the people around you. Love of God and love of neighbor here in the teaching of Jesus are wedded together. You cannot possess one without the other. And, 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 and when I say this is foundational, I mean we never outgrow the need to understand this and to hear this and reflect on this. We never grow past this. We never get so mature that we, we don't need to hear this or remember. You never outgrow the necessity of these two loves, the, the call to love God and love your neighbor. First John 3.13 says it this way. John says this. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life. How do you know that you have eternal life? How do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that you belong to the Lord Jesus? Well, John says, I know how you know. Here it is. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. These two loves capture every single commandment in the law of Moses. Every commandment has something to do with either loving God properly or loving your neighbor fully. Every commandment, even looking at the 10 commandments, the first five all have to do with the proper love of God and the authority that he has established, loving God. And the second five all have to do with loving each other and loving your neighbor and how we love our neighbor. Jesus says on these two commandments, hang the law and the prophets. Now notice, Jesus did not say that these two commandments replace the law and the prophets. You may have heard something along these lines before that since Jesus distills all of the law and he distills all the commandments down to love God and love your neighbor, well, then that just means we don't need the commandments or any other teaching about God's law for that matter. All we have to do is just love each other. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that God's law teaches us precisely what love looks like. God defines love in his law. And so we still need the law and the prophets, lest we import into the word love all of our own definitions and all of our own assumptions, our own ideas about what love is. And we load the word love with a lot of definitions that have really nothing to do with love or truth or righteousness. So these two loves, love of God and love of neighbor, don't replace the law but these two loves rest behind God's law. They're the foundation of the law and they are the end of the law. Love for God and love for neighbor is, is the goal of all of God's law. Law keeping is not an end in itself. It's not a goal in itself and it never has been. There's another incorrect assumption that the religion of the Old Testament was just all about this dead externalism, that that God gave Mount Sinai, God gave Israel a checklist of laws to keep. And they were just supposed to go through the motions and check the boxes and just crank out obedience to all of these ordinances. And, and, and that's how you earn God's favor. That's how you earn God's blessing. Just, just check the boxes and keep the laws. 
But, but the assumption goes, now in Jesus, we can discard all of that, and really there's nothing expected of us, just some right thoughts and some warm feelings, but no actions. Well, that's absolutely incorrect. That's upside down. True religion, true wor worship of the God of creation has always been about a love for God that produces obedience to God. I want to say that again clearly. True religion has always been about a love for God that produces obedience to God. When God gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, he said, I show mercy to those who love me and keep my commandments. He says, I want your affections. I want your worship. I want your fellowship. And out of that flows obedience. When he gives the law again in Deuteronomy 7, he says, therefore know that Yahweh your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. In Nehemiah 1.5, Nehemiah prays, Yahweh, God of heaven, you keep covenant and mercy with those who love you and who observe your commandments. There is never a time when God was looking for a dead, external, cold, formal religion. He has always been after your heart. He has looked for your fellowship and your communion and, and, and your friendship with him, to love him, to be loved by him, and to enjoy that fellowship together. He's always been after your heart. From the garden forward, God desires man's fellowship his love, because when man is properly oriented toward his creator, when you have a right relationship and right fellowship with your creator, an ordered way of thinking and an ordered way of living follows. It always begins with love. It always begins with a love that produces a desire to obey. I love the Lord my God, therefore I want to please him, therefore I do what he says, I obey him and I look for ways to obey him and to please him. So Jesus, in the Gospels, he tells his disciples, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Jesus, again, he's not innovating. Jesus isn't doing something new there. He isn't introducing love into the equation for the first time. An Old Testament man just had to keep the commandments without any love, without any affection. <laughs> no, it's always been love him and keep his commandments. Listen carefully how Paul summarizes all this in Romans 13. Listen to, to St. Paul. He said, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So Paul uh, echoes what Jesus says here, is that these, these loves are joined and wedded together in such that love for God overflows into love for our neighbor. Working backwards then, all breakdowns in human relationships, all defects in communication all difficulties in interactions are the result of failure to love God and to love each other. In, in a disordered relationship, someone has failed to think about 
and to obey what God requires of them. Someone has, has failed to consider what pleases God, and someone has failed to treat the other the way that they are required to treat them. So whenever, whenever there is pain and conflict and disruption and violence and hatefulness in any relationship, someone is failing to love God and neighbor. And it's always appropriate when you find yourself in the middle of conflict, it's always appropriate to consider, is that someone me? Am I the one who is failing to love God and to love my neighbor? And if it is, if it is me, to make haste toward repentance, even if the other person is in sin, even if the other person does not confess or forgive sin. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men, as much as it depends on you. That means don't walk around with contempt for everyone. That means treat every human as an image bearer of the triune God. Avoid self-promotion, pridefulness, and willfulness. Don't be contentious and edgy. Learn how to admit when you're wrong. Openly confess your sin. Don't confess things that aren't sin. Don't make up things to confess. Don't, don't uh, invent sins that God doesn't define as sins. Don't do that, obviously. But openly confess the real sins and, and ask for forgiveness. And don't always, don't always have to get the last word in. Jesus stresses here. This is the stress. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. How do you want to be loved? How do you want to to uh, be treated. Well, we all, I think we can, I can speak for everybody. We all want patience. We all want understanding. We all want respect. We all want honor. We want our, our needs to be addressed. But for some reason, our minds are clouded by sin and we have such a hard time providing that for others. We have an extremely difficult time allowing others to be honored and respected and allowing patience for them. We, we, we get into this selfish pattern of living that, that expresses itself this way. I, I want what I want. I don't care what you think. And I don't care uh, what you want. And I don't want to listen to you. And I'm not going to be merciful towards you. I'm not going to be compassionate. I just want to do what I want to do, no matter how that affects you. I don't care. Everyone around me is just a barrier to me getting what I want, whether it's rest or peace or money or respect, or whatever it is that I think, I'm, you're just a barrier to me getting what I want. Everybody is in my way. That, that is a sin-clouded mindset toward the people God has put in our lives. That is not, obviously, that is not loving your neighbor as yourself. If, on the other hand, however, if I lose myself in meeting your needs, if I consciously Avoid anything that unnecessarily harms you, that disrupts your life or your peace. If I'm protecting your life and your reputation and your property, and you're doing that for me, and we really don't need any extra laws to protect us from each other. We don't need, we don't need extra ordinances. The reason we have such legislative bloat in our society because, uh, you know, we have all these laws upon laws, upon ordinances, upon statutes. You have all these people who say, there ought to be a law. There, we got enough laws. We really do. We got enough laws. The reason that we, we have this endless uh, bloat of, of ordinances is because we've lost the simple, clear command that we have not loved God and we have not loved our neighbor. 
If we loved God and neighbor perfectly, we wouldn't need the endless writing of laws. And all of the laws that, that populated this Jewish society, these extra biblical laws that Jesus has been um, poking holes in this whole time, all of these, all of these uh, extra biblical laws may have been hundreds of years before attempts to clarify and codify love for God and love for neighbor, but they got out of control. They became more important than obeying God's clear word. So Jesus is calling them here back to the principle of love which they have forgotten. These loves, love for God, love for neighbor, are what the entire law is built upon. Well, while he has this audience gathered around him, he asks them one last question. In verse 41, when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Jesus asks a general question now with everybody gathered around. He says, the Christ, you know, the Messiah, the anointed one that you're all expecting. You all say that you're looking forward to Messiah. You're all waiting for him. The deliverer that you're waiting on Whose son is he? Whose son is the Messiah? And I think what's going on here is that he's finally getting around to answering the question that the chief priest first put to him. Remember, the very first question was, who do you think you are? Under what authority are you doing these things? And now at the very end of this section, he's finally getting back to it and saying, you know who I am? I'm about to tell you who I am. Uh, and it's all in Psalm 110, which we sang earlier today. He said, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you know who I am. Messiah. Whose son is he? That's Jesus' question. And they give a very straightforward genealogical answer. Genetically, Messiah is supposed to be a son of David. They expect Messiah to be a descendant of King David. And that's how they answer. True, that's right, 100%. That is correct. But then Jesus asks this question. And he, he plays their own game on them. They're, they're trying to give him all these riddles and questions, and he turns it around. And he says, okay, well, um, in Psalm 110, David inspired by the Holy Spirit, calls Messiah the Lord. Uh, under what circumstances would David call his son the Lord? Uh, of course, you and I, we have an answer for that. We got this sorted out, right? David's son is David's Lord. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, but he's also descended in the flesh from King David. But they couldn't answer this. They didn't have this ironed out. But the implication is clear. Because if Jesus is Messiah, as many people in this crowd believe, many people assembled here believe Jesus is Messiah. If Jesus is Messiah, and if David calls Messiah Lord, therefore Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, then he must be obeyed as God. He must be loved and worshiped as God. And that was just too much for them to fit inside their heads in that moment. So they don't have an answer and this section of interrogation of Matthew's gospel is over. Well, what can we take from this little section today? Just one brief reflection. This is it, one reflection. I want to meditate on and, and, and reflect on how Jesus emphasizes that right living before God and obedience to God begins with our affections. 
who and what we love. What we love determines how we act. Our actions reveal our affections. So many of our attempts at self-correction begin and end with the thing that we're trying to correct. We think, you know what, I really need to regulate my tongue or I need to fix my temper or I, or I need to stop stress eating or I need to stop wasting money or I need to stop being consumed with my phone or I need to stop uh, being addicted to video games or all these things. It's like, it's like this thing that is segmented and separated from us and isolated. It's over here and I just need to fix this thing over here. We begin and end with this thing and we try to brute force our way through that correction. And you can do that. It is, it is possible to fix a thing, to break a habit. But what happens inevitably is that if we haven't fixed the affection, the desire that led to this disordered behavior, if you haven't fixed the affection, what happens is you just end up swapping one addiction with another. Another bad habit fills that space. As Jesus uh, would say, seven other wicked spirits enter and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. You see, that the, the sinful thing, the destructive habit, does not begin and in, in itself. It begins in the heart whose affections are twisted. I'm addicted, I'm disordered, because my affections are disordered. I want something more than pleasing God. I love something more than God. There's something that makes me happier than obedience to God. And you know what we call that? What do you call something when you love it more than God? You call that an idol, right? So, so if I'm going to make the kinds of changes that are effective, that are sustainable, that are pleasing to God, the idol must be destroyed. The thing that I'm loving more than God, that I'm wanting more than God, that I want more than obeying him, I must name it and repent of it and consciously deliberately, by the Spirit, reorder my affections. And you see, when, when I love God the way that Jesus describes, the way that Deuteronomy 6.4 describes, when I love God that way, then I have a proper ordered use of food and money and time, and I control my tongue, and I control my um, emotions, and I, can, and, and I can give thanks to God and use technology in a way that, that is good and pleases God. But, but that all requires training, so I have to actively discipline my heart to love God and to discipline and train my heart to love the people around me. This is not natural. None of this is natural. This is all supernatural. This is a work of a spirit to train and discipline my heart to love God and to love the people that God has put around me. Every day, every single day, you are training your affections. You are training yourself in what to love and you are training yourself in what to ignore or what to despise or what to hate. You are training yourself. You are feeding parts of yourself with either things that nourish you physically, spiritually, emotionally, or you're feeding yourself the equivalent of spiritual junk food, something that gives you this quick little rush of satisfaction, this, this little rush of distraction, but leaves you hungry. It doesn't, it doesn't fill you up. It doesn't bear fruit. It doesn't move your life forward. Only things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable nourish you and train your heart to love God. 
And, and loving God, as Jesus describes, loving God with every part of you isn't simply just ginning up emotions. I'm gonna, I'm gonna force it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna feel good today. I'm, I'm going to love God. No, it, it means growing and, and training yourself in an abiding allegiance to God and his word that weathers any opposition no matter what the mockers and what the scoffers say, no matter what the threats of violent men are, no matter how people respond to your obedience to God, never, never ever fear how people react to your faithfulness, how people respond to, to your obedience to God. God doesn't hold you accountable for how other people respond when you obey him. God requires you to obey. He'll deal with the responses. And loving God then means obeying no matter what, fearing him, fearing him more than any man or consequence. Loving God means that I desire his fellowship, his communion. I desire his pleasure more than anything. Nothing makes me happier than knowing that I'm his servant and that he says to me, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That he says to me, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's all I need. That's the satisfaction that I'm looking for. That love for God, that, that produces that, that orients me, orients all of us as his humble servants. It positions us to love our neighbor. It cannot be overstated. It's impossible to overstate that this is the key to everything. This is the key to everything. Love for God, love for neighbor. That's why Jesus will say, yes, that is the great commandment. Absolutely, that is the great commandment. Meaning there's nothing greater than this. There's nothing more important than this. You cannot overstate it. This is uh, uh, the, the end. This is the goal. This is the foundation. This hangs over everything. Love for God and love for neighbor. And so we'll pray for God's spirit to strengthen us in this. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you to give us your spirit to strengthen us. Again, we acknowledge this is this not come by natural means. This comes by your spirit uh, filling us and strengthening us and, and moving us toward love for you and love for the people around us. So, Father, we ask you to cause us to rest in you and build us up toward this end. In Jesus' name, amen.